1: Everyone needs an identity, right? It defines who we are. It promotes our brand. It makes us feel safe in the world. It can also be a trap. Many people don't like the identity they've created, but it earns them a living. It gains them respect and admiration. They can't let that identity go. They're locked inside it. They can break out by changing their story. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Luis DiBianco. I've discovered that leaders are readers. And as a listener to this show... You have access as a free gift to any audiobook of your choice, choosing from more than 180,000 titles from our sponsor, Audible. Just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Choose the book that you want. Download it for free. Enjoy it and keep it forever. Also, you will get a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. I'm excited to announce that I have created brand new content for you. It is an additional episode, a short one, about five to ten minutes long, and it will appear at least once a week. I call these episodes one-word stories. Each episode will focus on a word, a common word that we all use, but it may be charged with meanings that are affecting our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Enjoy these episodes as mini shots of empowerment. Remember to keep your dialogue with the show alive. It enriches everyone. Send your responses, your comments, your requests to LoseClub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Today's guest is a man who listened to his inner voice and changed his story more than once. He was a successful lawyer, a real estate agent, a creative force in the art world. Today, He's a speaker, writer, entrepreneur. He helps businesses become highly efficient and productive by using proven systems, social media, content creation, and micro-marketing. He's the founder and editor of Redoubtable and a major contributor to publications on Medium. He is also passionate about being a dad and has created Dad, the podcast that explores the meaning of fatherhood. Get ready to enrich your mind and have some fun with Jonathan Green. Jonathan, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Well, let's start having some fun.
0: Absolutely.
1: (laughs) I'd like to know, what did you love about being a state prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney with more than 200 cases under your belt.
0: Mm, well, the, the number suggests that I like trials a lot. I was, uh, I was a voracious trial attorney. I would do as many trials as I could get my hand on. Um, and part of that was just because of the volume that we had when I started. We had so many cases that there were really no options. If you didn't go to trial all the time, you were never going to reduce your caseload um, because people – At at that time, the defense attorneys needed to know that you were willing to go to trial or they would, you know, we'd just end up delaying the process. Um, But my dad was a lawyer. um, So um, when I went to my second college and started getting interested in criminal justice, sociology, psychology, philosophy, I I just kind of went into I'm going to go to law school. Um, I know it made him really proud. He wasn't a trial attorney, so he used to come watch me in trial and I know those were great moments for him because it was just something that he didn't like to talk in front of other people. And although I was shy as a child and I'm, I'm basically an introvert, um, when I get on the stage, I'm able to do well. And that's what I, I loved about trials was uh, thinking on your feet um, and being a part of the justice process from both sides as a prosecutor and when I was a defense attorney.
1: Hmm. Great answer. You know, I'm, lately this theme of people who are very, very strong presenters and they're great on stage. The theme of uh, being an introvert has been popping up a lot for me. I've been listening and watching people speak and they'll suddenly reveal, by the way, I'm an introvert. Like I'm working myself uh, into a frame of mind to do what I do, but essentially I'm an introvert. I find that very interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, I i never had to, I didn't need to kind of like get charged up to do this stuff, but my general nature is that of like, I enjoy solitude. I mean, I enjoy having my friends, but if someone says, do you want to go to a party or, you know, go shopping, Christmas shopping at the mall or stay at home, I want to stay at home. I've always been a homebody. I grew up as a latchkey kid. So it's just my comfort zone. And I think over the years, a lot of people interpret for those of us who are introverts that think that that doesn't mean that we, means that we don't like other people or that we, you know, we can't be productive at our jobs, but that's the biggest fallacy in the classification of introverts from the beginning. Hmm. It's just that we prefer to be with less people generally, because for me specifically, it's just, there's just a lot of activity and I like quiet and And slower moving things, but I I didn't know that I had the abilities that I had to kind of turn it on into trial until it happened because I had taken speech classes in college, but I, I wasn't really ready. But when I was confident about the material that I was working with, and I used to study my cases all night, so I knew everything. And I think that was part of what made me so confident in court and confident about going to trial is that I, I knew everything. It didn't mean that everything was going to go the way that I thought in trial because it, it never does. But I also didn't kind of prescribe everything that was going to happen. I would just write one line notes. And my friends always used to say to me, where are all your questions? And I said, they're, they're in my head because I react to the answers that I get. And I just jot down notes of where I want to go. So sure, once in a while I forget something, but more times than not, I'm following a, a responsive dialogue instead of, you know, following a checklist that never corresponds to what witnesses say in court ever.
1: You know that that's actually the um, the definition of what great acting is all about.
0: Yeah, I I felt like an actor many times, uh, responsiveness and and playing off what what others do exactly. Um, I'm, if you look at a lot of the more more or less comedy movies now, some of those directors, the majority of the scripts are just ad libs for the actors because it comes off more real. And even with podcasting, um, I, I, you know, I like you send me a, a list of questions, but I, I know I'm I i do not need to study them. Like I told you right away, I'm I'm good on my feet because I never want anything to sound canned. It's just gonna right. come out, you know, the way it comes out.
1: Oh, that's great! That's wonderful. I mean, yeah, that I used to teach improvisation, and that is the key to not have the thought in your head about what you're going to say, but wait for the response, uh, wait for the person speaking to you to trigger your response. And um, you know, on this topic, do, do you know that uh, Robert De Niro is uh, apparently a very shy person?
0: It doesn't surprise me. I think I'll, I think that. People assume that celebrities enjoy the spotlight, but I've always said that the two things have no correspondence. Being good at something, whether acting or not, doesn't mean you're outgoing. No. And being you're an introvert doesn't mean that you don't like other people. I I, I like other people a lot. I just don't want to be around a lot of them at the same time because you you can't connect like that, and it's a lot of extra noise.
1: Do you know a book uh, that's called – I think the title is just Quiet –
0: yeah, I, I haven't read it yet, but I've heard phenomenal things about it. Uh, yeah. I believe I, I follow the author uh, a lot because I, I, it's on my reading list. I just read mm. so much; it's probably about ten back right now. But I, I'm very interested in it, um, and I think that that it, from what I've read, it's helped kind of expose the fact that introverts are are not what people thought in the beginning.
1: I love that. See, the, these these uh, these this these questions weren't planned right now. No, right. They're that's just, what I love
0: about it. And I knew from the yeah. way that you proposed it to me that it's just a dialogue where it goes, it goes. And you never know, you know, if you're listening to my answers, then we go on another tangent, but it's a good one.
1: <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. One last note about De Niro. I remember reading a, a casting director who knew him, Michael Shirtleff said, if you want to find De Niro at a party, look for the guy who's staring at the wall.
0: Yeah. I, that, <laughs> that, that, that was me. People used to say like, you know, oh, what'd you do last night when you went out? You know, when we were kids and we would go out a lot at night and I'd say, oh, I've always stand in the corner of the bar or as, as far away from everybody as I can. So oh, did you talk to anyone? No, I didn't talk to anyone. I talked to my friends. Like that's just it just wasn't it wasn't me. I'm not you know, I, I don't think anyone would ever describe me as the life of the party, although individually they would think I'm I'm funny. But but it's just not you know I, I never wanted to be on a stage but when I was when I was there in trials, you know you, you I was doing my job and mm. I, and I and I I did the research to to feel confident in what I had and I you know I think in any business I've ever been in or anything I've ever done the the times when I feel uh, most uncomfortable are when I'm not confident with the material that I have so as long as I know my material. And when you're a guest, it's my materials, my life. So there's really nothing to worry about. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I just have to answer.
1: Jonathan, what was the pivotal event that made you leave the law?
0: Uh, that That's easy. Uh, my dad died. Um, so my, my mom died when I was 20. Um, I, she was my best friend. My dad was my best friend. You know, I talked to him five times a day. And when I was 33, he died. Uh, I was still a lawyer at that time, I, I think I was in my defense practice then, and he loved that I was a lawyer, um, and when he passed away, I just realized that it, it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore, I wasn't passionate about it, and I had two little kids at the time, and dealing with the, the criminal system day in and day out, um, it's just not what I wanted to bring home, and it was hard to, hard to leave it at work. Um, And I I also realized that um, when my dad passed away, I I remembered all these things about him, you know, because we were found stuff, all these paintings and sculptures. So he was a very creative person who didn't he he did the stuff when he was younger, but then he was busy in real estate and, and, and as a lawyer. So he didn't really let himself get into his creative things, but he made great sculptures. I remember them. We don't have any of them, but we have some of his paintings. And for me, I just knew at that time that to fulfill my life's cause, whatever that's going to be over the years. And, you know, as part of change your story, I, I changed my story. I've changed it multiple times, but I knew I wanted to free myself from law and that I had, you know, I had done enough about 10 years was just enough for me
1: so what did you do in you you did move into the arts right what did you specifically do
0: yeah at the time uh my ex-wife and i we bought a building we were living in sarasota florida at the time when we bought basically a house in an artist colony there was this quirky artist colony called tolls court in sarasota and we bought a building painted the cool colors. And, and honestly, we weren't a hundred percent sure what we were going to do with it. We ended up opening what was a half boutique and half uh, art gallery. And I slowly became obsessed with artists and art. And, and I learned so much from artists about being free as a person and, and not, you know, not kind of kowtowing to the expectations of everybody because then as an artist if you did that you'd never put out a painting you mean you just never finish one because you always be worried about what someone was going to say because uh, anybody who's looked at a a piece of abstract art knows that uh, 99 people will have 99 different opinions as to what it
1: is. Uh, Imagine if Jackson Pollock had worried about what people thought
0: (laughs) and it was very clear that he he didn't and one of the beautiful (laughs) things about artists is that Uh, although it does haunt them, I think a lot of artists, you know, thinking what, what are people going to think of this, that they still, in order to make the best art, they can't, they can't worry about it because it will constrain what they're making. And I think that I took that and, you know, brought it into my life principles, which, which I've always been strong minded. If I want to do something, I do it. Um, but I think that the, the creativity was the part that I was suppressing, you know, making of any kind, or just assuming I wasn't going to be good at it, or that I couldn't be a writer. Um, And a lot of times, it's just going back to the societal norms, where you feel like, well, I have to have a nine to five, everybody I know has a nine to five. So I just need to do that. And I've, I've gone back and forth on that. I've just now I've abandoned that.
1: Wonderful. Uh, Why I was attracted to you, uh, your story is is precisely because of these transitions that you allowed yourself to make because, I mean, when I even think about uh, books that have been written about the different stages of life and I look at them and I say, but these are, someone has created this model and it may not necessarily be the way everyone experiences life. And, you know, people might feel, oh my God, I've reached age 35 I should have done XYZ. Well, why? Maybe not. It's not there's no should. You have to listen to that inner voice and define your own story.
0: I I completely agree. And I, I think that too many people um hold themselves to standards that are outdated. I mean, the world is changing. People can find a new career anytime that you want. It may not be simple. There may not be an easy path, but you know, I hear a lot that people say, well, I I can't do it. And I can guarantee you that anybody can do it. It's just about how you plan to do it. I don't expect everyone to just say, I quit the job. I worked for 20 years and walk out with no savings and no plan. You know, that wouldn't be smart. But if you create a plan, build yourself some runway, there's certainly ways to do it. Because if we spend all this time at work, why should we hate it? And if we do hate it, why shouldn't we go do something else? Because everybody can do something else. You know, maybe it's not your dream job, but if you hate your job anyway, maybe you can find something that's more enjoyable that will at least not stress you out so that when you come home, you're full for your family instead of downtrodden like a lot of jobs do to a lot of us. Mm. And you don't want to come home like that to your kids.
1: No. Or, you know... If, if you don't have kids, you don't want to come home like that yourself, to yourself because you're not really fully alive. You know, you're just yeah. going through the motions. And that is an awful way to be. Well, you know, we we'll go back to Henry David Thoreau, that most people lead lives of quiet desperation. And there's no need for that, especially today, because jobs as we know them are quickly disappearing in this digital age. So people you know, maybe have even more of a reason to start looking at what do I really love doing in the world? Now, how did you become an entrepreneur at the age of five?
0: (laughs) (laughs) uh, My dad was a very smart, person. He he worked for the IRS and then he became a, an attorney, um, but he didn't make a cent as an attorney. That's obviously not the smart part, but he he was such a nice person that but most of his attorney work was barter work. He was a probate attorney, so he would just barter, get paid sometimes in the estate, sometimes not. He, he really didn't care, but he, he became a real estate entrepreneur when he was very young, Um, and he taught me from the time I was five years old, I was going to look at foreclosures with him. He would have them in the newspaper. We would go look at them and this is before the dawn of the internet. So we did some things that probably you shouldn't do anymore, but we would go look at abandoned houses and a lot of times the door was locked, but there were, I was small so I could get through some places. So he would push me through a window. I would go open the door and we would check out the house. He would buy the house, fix it up, sell the house. Um, and we, we would go to a lot of yard sales. So um, <laughs> my dad taught me early on the art of negotiation, which I perfected when I was an attorney. Um, but I would see him and we would be I remember there was this time where my brother and I went down to the basement at a yard sale and we came up with a football and the football was 75 cents. I mean, like big deal. So we told my dad, oh, it, it was on the 75 cent table. And when we went up to the front, the guy asked my dad, oh, how much was that? And he goes, oh, it was 50 cents. And my brother goes, no, it was 75 cents. And my dad gave him like the look of death over a quarter. But it was just those things like he just he knows how yard sales work. Everybody's taking less than they're going to. And we used to go every weekend. So I think that growing up with that kind of mindset, um, but also being a good person and making sure that everybody's taken care of. Um, was really important and helped me learn to, uh, you know, build on my own, even though I didn't do it until much later.
1: I love that story. I love the the part about um, being small enough to get into the abandoned <laughs> building through the window. I started seeing the beginnings of either a children's book series or a little TV series for kids in which the the hero is a young kid who is a real estate genius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really.
0: The funny thing is, I, you know, I think as children we don't realize how much our our parents teach us until we get older, or until we kind of touch that same area of our life. Because I I didn't, I knew a lot about real estate. I was investing in real estate from the time I was eighteen with my with my sister, who was younger than me, with my dad in partnerships. He taught me everything. But until I kind of got through everything i was as being an attorney and i could focus then i started to realize like wait i i how do i know all this stuff and then i started to think a lot about the the lessons that my dad was teaching me and my mom um just by being around and i think you just kind of appreciate it more as you're older and with my kids they're both teenagers i already know this so i can be kind of annoying with telling them these stories and i know they're going to appreciate it one day without me me having to worry about it
1: mm. Now, do you experience ever a conflict between your business self and your creative self?
0: Yeah, I mean I, I did. It's why I got out of what I call the rat race. I, I think that um I experienced it most um when I when I was in real estate. I, I did really well really quickly, uh, transitioned, grew teams, built teams, and and became a real estate coach. I knew how to do a lot of stuff technology wise. But what I found and and what I actually find in some of the the ways of writing or marketing is that We corrupt ourselves and especially with social media. Social media is a big thing. We corrupt ourselves by uh, thinking that we want certain things because they look good. So for business, it's you want a lot of leads. Like if you're in sales, like I just want to get as many leads as I can. But then when you get all the leads, you're not prepared to handle them. And if you haven't built out a team that can handle the leads, you're just wasting your money because you're bringing in all these leads to a system that can't work for them. Or you say, well, then I'll automate that system. Well, that doesn't help either because you're just you're missing the mark. It's why I pay so much attention to micro marketing, which is finding the small parts of your um you know, content, uh, management system that need that are raising their hands instead of the hundred, you know, 110,000 people who don't really care what you're sending out. Mm. Um, but I, I, I find that it transitions the same to social media. Uh, and I know everything about social media, but I've really started tra- to transition myself out of it as much as possible because I've just the, the, the kind of allure of people gaining followers. Like I want followers and followers, but it doesn't really do anything. Like a follower who doesn't look at anything that you do is of no use to you. It's just a number. And the only thing that's important is raving fans. And if you want to build a business or if you want to build a following as a writer or a creative or as an artist, you want the raving fans who will go and talk about you. And those numbers or, or bot farms that will follow you are, are never going to help you do
1: that. No, it's true. It's, it's just um, it's, a, it's very intoxicating for the ego.
0: Absolutely. To be able that's to a say. That's problem.
1: Yeah, it is. I know. I have 300,000 followers. Okay. Uh, But uh, how much money do you make from them? Oh, oh, I don't. Uh, Oh, okay. And and, and even
0: if you do, it's like, I mean, for me, it was like I, I, I worked so hard at Facebook campaigns and real estate to generate the leads, and then some of the leads would turn into money. But the more leads, the more time, the more phone calls. And then the less time with my kids. So Mm. at some point I just had to say like, no, I'm just not going to do this. I dropped it in one, one day. I was just like, I'm, I'm done. I I just cannot handle phone calls from seven in the morning till 10 at night. I just can't do it. You know, I want, I want to be, I want to, feel the feeling of solitude and to be able to actually pay attention to my kids instead of saying at the dinner table, like a lot of busy parents say like, oh, I'm sorry, this is really important. It's not really important because nothing's more important than me having dinner with my kids. Whether or not they want to have a full conversation at the, at the dining room table, I shouldn't be looking at my phone.
1: You know, as, as you speak, I'm getting a, a picture of a man who has a really strong inner GPS system that really guides you toward the right decisions you know that's that's great you know that's
0: it it came from my parents i mean i you know i grew up with uh i had no rules growing up i grew up with a hippie mom and a very lax you know dad but i never really did anything bad i just they just taught me to you know be good without overdoing it and i hope i do that same thing with my kids um so far so good (laughs)
1: Shifting gears for a moment what sure. did what did death teach you about life
0: well i I just wrote a very long article on medium, which is where I write every day and it was about all the deaths in my family because I've had a lot more than most people at forty seven Basically, all of my older relatives are dead, but for a couple, um, I've given multiple eulogies and um, I think it's just taught me the appreciation of life. Um, my dad always told me don't rush life and it's something that I take into account now every day. Um, but by seeing people pass away with regrets, I've learned to live a regret free life. I kind of think that I always have. I don't look back at decisions that I've made and, and beat myself up for them because they happened and that's just, I'm, I'm not going to look backwards. Uh, I look backwards to enjoy the memories, not to, to feel bad about things that may not have been perfect. So I think now um, I write a lot about death and what I'm trying to get across to people is you may think that your parents or your relatives or your friends will be there forever and you don't have to reach out to them. But if you really care about somebody, you need to make a point to reach out because you just none of us know in this culture and world today what is going to happen to tomorrow. So if you're not paying attention to those that are closest to you, um, you're missing out and you're missing out on stories. I think I... You know, my parents died, you know, at 20 and 33, and I learned from my mom dying at 20 to ask my dad as many questions as as I should, and that really helped me in those 13 years. I would just ask him everything about his childhood growing up, and that's something I wish I had done with my mom, but, you know, frankly, I was too young to even think that was a possibility.
1: It strikes me that you probably have read a book called Tuesdays with Maury.
0: I have. (laughs) <laughs> I've, read, I've read a lot of books like that as okay. well. Um, and I, I mean, I write constantly about death because it's just a, you know, it's been an, in my life a lot.
1: And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you tell them what Tuesdays with Maury, you know, and give us uh, a, I, a brief yeah, description. Yeah, I mean, I,
0: I read it so long ago. I love Mitch Albom. Uh, I was, it, the thing is, I, I knew Mitch Albom as a sports guy. I think that, was that his first book? I don't know. Yeah, don't it know. it might have been. So I, I don't remember the full the full story, but I know it was it was it, so Mitch. It was his relationship with Maury over the years that was so important to him. Um, and I think that he learned a lot after that. That he was spending all those days with this guy, and then not realizing how much it meant to him, because at some point it didn't mean as much to Mitch, the author as it meant to Maury, or he didn't understand how much it meant to him or how much he was learning along the way by these Tuesday meetings.
1: Well, the, but it's important, I think, that Maury was dying, right? Right, right, absolutely. Yeah. so he would visit him every Tuesday, and so he would, get, you know, he would have these enriching moments of appreciating life being with someone who was about to die.
0: Yeah. And, and knowing uh, the, the one study that everybody points to and that I think about a lot is, is there's a, I mean, there's been multiple studies, but it's about what people talk about when they're on their deathbed, basically. And most people are talking about all the regrets that they have of not doing things, not saying things, not being there for people. And I know I won't be one of those people. I just won't. It doesn't mm. matter if it's tomorrow or in 50 years. Uh, I'm paying attention to what's in front of me I mean i do by no means make perfect choices. I mess up all the time, but i'm not gonna I'm not gonna die with regrets.
1: Have you studied any formal personal development
0: yeah i mean i studying yes I mean I read a ton so I've read a ton of personal development books i I read a lot of books on uh Buddhist philosophy um I read 75 books last year, and a lot of them—probably half of them—were personal development-based. Um, before that, there was a lot of kind of scalable business books, which helped me <laughs> to realize that I don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, I've read a lot of books that I think are are helpful in personal development um, by a variety of different authors.
1: Can you? Oh, does do any of them jump to mind?
0: Um, well, for me, I I wanted to really know the background of, of Zen Mind. So I read Zen Mind, Beginner Mind by Shunryu Suzuki. That was huge for me. Um, Lao Tzu's uh, uh, book uh, Tao Te Ching, which is one of the oldest books ever. Um, those are kind of philosophical endeavors for me. Um, there's a book that I really appreciated that was um, – is really to me a personal development book, but not build so much as one. It's called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson, and it's just it's such a good way of of saying the thing that if you take one step today, you can take two steps tomorrow. Uh, it's applicable to literally any business, anything in life, uh, you know, diets, exercise, anything. And if you just do it, um, and for me, what I've trained a lot is to track it then you know, like if you write down, when I started writing full time, I would write down how I still track how many words I write every day because I like to see it in front of me. Um, and slight edge was just a great, uh, development book on how you can get to the next stage. Um, there's a few books on momentum that I really liked. Um, I have my whole list in front of here. There's so many, (laughs) I, I, there's one book that was really important to me that I read recently. Um, it was called breaking the male code, unlocking the power of friendship by Robert Garfield. And that was, um, helpful to me. I was never really, I was never really like a guy's guy. I, 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 I mean, I like sports and things, but I don't think I I didn't really act like that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't interpret myself as wearing a bunch of the male masks of masculinity, like Lewis Howe says, but, but I did. Um, So I think that kind of making it okay for men to express their emotions and talk about things is is a huge benefit, Um, and it's what I talk about a lot in my writing.
1: I love it, and I do agree that The Slight Edge is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, So when you were in real estate, I'd like to know what you loved about it, and then why why did you leave it?
0: Uh, I I love real estate. I love actual houses. I, I, because of the way I grew up, my dad bought and sold so many, we would live in a house and just when it was perfect, he's like, okay, we just sold the house. We're leaving. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and I didn't understand until later when he told me how much we made and that's just how, you know, you make money. Um, so I, I like, I like the aesthetics of houses. I like the quirkiness of houses. I like old houses that are that are different, have odd shaped rooms. Um, but I also like you know redoing houses. I just kind of like the process. And as an agent, when I was doing it, I loved handing somebody the keys to their first home. I mean, there's there's nothing better, unless you consider you know that the mortgage industry is crazy and that we're all paying so much more for our houses if you have a mortgage. But it's the way to get home ownership, to get out of, uh, renting and to be able to paint your house and fix the outside and put in a bathroom if you want. Um, so those things were really the charging force, um, to go into it. I knew I knew a lot about it and I think by my background, it helped me to do well right away, but because I did well, that's actually what led me to leave (laughs) real estate. I did doing well requires more work, building teams, um, and I'm good at building things, but it was taking up so much of my time and I would just was not happy. I, well, I, I was staying, I wanted to throw my phone out the window all the time. It rang nonstop and texts from seven in the morning till, till 10 at night. And it was nobody's fault, but my own because I allowed it. Um, I have other friends in the business who are pretty strict on their hours. And I was always like, well, if I'm around, I'll answer the call. But that gave me no quality of life. Um, And I think that you I think that the business is real estate business is really uh, it's, it's slanted against the agent. I mean, that's just how it is. Agents, you know, the the brokerages are taking money from them, you know, and you're getting paid a percentage of of the commission if it closes. So a lot of times it's just a frustrating proposition. And at, at some point, I it wasn't so much real estate. It was just that I didn't want to be beholden to anything or anybody else other than my children. And I wanted to go on a creative journey, which is why I changed my story again.
1: <laughs> you know, it was fascinating about your answer when you began talking about why you love real estate. What I'm hearing more and more is that I think essentially you're an artist because what you were describing, the things that turned you on and excited you about real estate have to do with the creative process. You were yeah. talking about the shape of rooms. You're talking about the aesthetics of a home, of especially um, taking an old home and making it beautiful, renovating it. Those are all forms of artistic and creative expression.
0: Yeah, very astute. I've i been obsessed with aesthetics since I was a child. I always wanted my room to look perfect and organized, but like in a cool type of way. And when I started in the art world and met artists and learned about curation, I kind of took the idea of art curation to everything in my life it's just an organizational principle and I've always been efficient and I've always designed ways even as a lawyer to be more efficient. But aesthetics have always been really important to me, how something looks not from a commercial sense, but in how it makes you feel like I'm very interested in Feng Shui. I try it and then I move stuff around. But I think that the way that something looks or in your house will make you feel a certain way. So if you have a room that's extremely closed in and you can open it up a little, it will change the entire world and feeling of that room. And a lot of times these changes are so minimal, you know, natural light, things like that can change everything. One window can change a room. Um, so I think aesthetics, their aesthetics have even been important to me in, in, in online. You know, when I, whenever I was doing uh, ads or marketing, I always wanted them to look a certain way, which is minimalistic. I'm a minimalist. Um, I, I try not to hoard as much as pro- possible. And I just want to have that feeling where I don't want a, a, a ton of furniture. I just want things that I like.
1: I totally relate. I get it. Um, I uh, have that in my nature as well. And uh, yeah, it, it's true. Space the spaces that we live in affect us emotionally, and most people don't really give it much thought. But uh, changing the space can either elevate your emotions or it can make you feel awful.
0: Yeah, it's surprising to me how many people don't play with their spaces wherever they live, whether you live in an apartment, house, condo, anything. I I used to just move my room around as a kid like every three months just because I wanted to see how it felt a different way. And I'd move my bed. I'd move my dresser. I didn't care. I just wanted it, it, it. It feels better. It's more interesting. And then you figure out which one is best for you energy-wise, a lot of people, you know, if you look at the principles of feng shui, you don't want to have, you know, you shouldn't have your back to the door because the door is the entryway to, to the room. And that, that just makes sense. Why would you want to have your back to a door? Why do you want to be looking directly into a corner? You know, these, so these things just, it will play a difference in your life if you just open up the room or adjust it to what works for your personality.
1: Absolutely. Another way of putting it for me would be, start thinking of your space in terms of the story that it tells because every space tells a story
0: absolutely and that that's a that's a great point because i think that if you if you're looking at spaces as inanimate objects that that can do nothing of course you won't pay attention to it but if you wonder why you feel bad in a certain room all the time and the room's not doing anything to you it's just the way that it's configured
1: may may i share something with you that came out of my work in the theater
0: yeah please
1: I directed plays for a while and uh, when I was acting in plays, I learned from some great directors about the dynamics of space and I remember a set designer walking with me through a theater, an empty theater, and he looked at a stage and he, there was no one on the stage and he said that it was static, there was no movement in it and yeah. I asked him to explain And he explained that when you create a set and you utilize the power of diagonal lines, you're creating a sense of movement and conflict even. And so when I started directing plays, before I would think about what the actual furniture and the physical objects in that space should look like, I would say, what is the major conflict in the play and how can the space be set up to enhance that?
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I look at rooms like that. It's why I love if I redo a house and there's nothing in it, that's how I love to start because I can look at a room and see what's going to feel good instead of already having everything clogged in there. And one thing to follow up on that, so when when I was a I was a curator at a at the Hunter and Art Museum in Clinton, New Jersey, which is a contemporary museum, I was there for about a year and a half. And I I was a minimalist, and I think that they at the time they they people were used to more work. So I would hang maybe 10 paintings in an entire show and they would say, oh, well, you know, it's not really enough work. And I would say, no, it's exactly the right amount of work because these 10 were chosen for a reason. I want people to pay attention. And I was always in my curatorial side. I never wanted your eye to be able to see another piece while you were looking at one. Obviously, from a certain distance, because it was distracting and would take away. I wanted you to be able to spend time in front of each issue, uh, e- each each painting, or each piece of art. And that's the same as what you were saying: as somebody's looking at the overall whole before they even build the set. See what does this space give us to work with, and how can we make something, you know, or organize it in a way that will benefit the story that we're going to tell.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. It really, really is. Now, what inspired you to create Redoubtable, and why that name?
0: Well, uh, I, was, I I was because I write so much, I'm always looking in thesaurus, and I'm looking everywhere. I like words. I've always liked words a lot. And to me, uh, the definition of Redoubtable is really, it, it says causing fear or alarm, but for me, I was taking formidable, illustrious, eminent, and then worthy of respect. And to me, that was representative of, of the writers that I wanted to bring in. So Redoubtable is a publication on Medium where I get other writers to write for it and I write for it. And since then, I've also opened up another one called Uncalendared, which is actually um, a similar principle um, because Uncalendared is based on unstoppable writers, undocumented, unmeasured in time. They carry the same kind of wait. So for me, uh, writing every day was great, but Medium gives you the option of having publications of your own where you bring in other writers. And that's been uh, fun that way to, to you know, help other writers get out there and for me to work with other writers who I really respect and, and bring them in.
1: Hmm, I love that. Talking about loving words, you probably have this book, Aspire by Kevin Hall.
0: I don't, but I'm going to put that one on my list right now.
1: (laughs) Okay. The forward is by Stephen Covey. Oh, yeah. It's Aspire, Discovering Your Purpose Through the Power of Words. Oh,
0: fantastic. Oh, yeah. yeah. I I would get that.
1: It's a marvelous, marvelous book. You know, there's a movie called Redoubtable. I've never seen it, but... uh, uh, I haven't I,
0: seen it. I, the good thing is when I was looking for the words, I didn't find too much when I pl, you know, I plug everything into Google to see how often it comes up, but I didn't find much. But I do, I think I remember that. I do think there is a movie. I'm a big movie buff as well. Uh, my son is a huge movie person. So yeah, we're watching a lot and paying attention a lot.
1: What's the last movie you saw?
0: Uh, this weekend we just watched The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly together. We kind of go through the list of the top hundred movies. He he loves movies, um. So we just we watch all time greats, and this was great. You know, two hours and fifty eight minutes uh, with Clint Eastwood as Blondie was was way better than I thought it was going to be. Even that, even knowing it was going to be great.
1: Well, you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that title because I use it often when I'm teaching people about storytelling. Oh. Because, yeah, uh, what I do is I challenge people, you think it's all about the words. No, it's about the pictures that you paint, and that is a brilliant example. I tell people, watch the opening scene with a stopwatch, mm. and then at the moment that the first word is spoken, find out where that is. You'll be shocked, and you'll realize that many, many minutes have gone by. Yeah. The story yeah. is being told and not a word has been spoken.
0: Yeah, that, so recently when we, we were in Austin looking at colleges for him and we saw a quiet, a quiet Place there by John Krasinski, and that was a modern movie with limited dialogue, obviously because of the plot, but it's it made me try to count the amount of time like in Space Odyssey where there's only like eight minutes of dialogue. And when my son and I watched Space Odyssey for the first time, we were like, is this going to be boring? And then you get so transfixed on the on the, the the actual reality that there's nobody has to speak for this to be so compelling. And I think that's what's so great about movies, you know, that the ones that don't overdo it. I think TV has taken over movies for sure. But a good old movie just teaches you that you don't need constant dialogue or special effects to make it perfect. And yeah, that's a, it's a great point. I remember watching the, the first scene and just following along and realizing, you know, there's no dialogue and it's not necessary.
1: No. And, and, and I, I use it as an illustration of how to hook people because you get hooked. You're right? completely hooked in what's going on. Uh, if you haven't seen this one, it's a must. You've got to get on DVD or stream it. It's an early, early spielberg called duel i don't think i've seen it okay
0: i'll get it my son will be right on that for sure i
1: I don't know if there's any dialogue because the two central characters it's a car Mm -hmm. and a truck
0: oh yeah yeah i know the movie i but i i haven't seen it
1: oh my god yeah a perfect example of dramatic storytelling matter of fact we never see the truck driver, never. We yeah. only see the front of the truck and that becomes this ominous threatening character throughout the entire um, film. It's just mm. amazing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I,
1: who knew we're going to go in this direction?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. though. That's, what's, that's what makes it fun.
1: So how can a person, not you, but how can other people know that it's time to leave their job for a creative pursuit?
0: Uh, I mean, I I really think that everybody knows deep down it's just a matter of will and can. Um, I I completely appreciate where people feel like they're stuck, but I I can guarantee that nobody's ever stuck. There's always a way to figure something out. It just takes some hard work to figure out how you can build up enough, you know, what I call runway, which is, you know, a.k.a. money to make a transition to something new. And nobody says that you can't work a job that you don't enjoy and look for other jobs along the way without taking away from the work you're doing. Um, And I think that um, it's just inherent to know if you're going to work every day and you hate it, you can definitely do something that you don't hate. All work is not hate. Um, And all the jobs I've worked, I've enjoyed. But they got to a point where I didn't enjoy it. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to, to follow my gut when that happens and say, I'm going to make a change. And I know it can't be that easy for everyone, but uh, I'm pretty hard headed when it comes to that. And it, it's become easier and easier for me to change my story over the years by paying attention to it early and not tricking myself into, oh, it's going to get better because that's, it doesn't, doesn't work like that.
1: Mm, good answer. Good answer. Oh, thanks. Now, you talk about a social media hierarchy. What is that and how do you use it to build business relationships?
0: Yeah, I, I use it a lot in real estate. And part of what I um, would propose in a lot of my talks was this hierarchy. Uh, and it's basically the proper way to connect with people. Because if the more that we're online on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the more that inappropriate kind of friend requests come so I built just a mini system that starts where it should, which is LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is a business network. It's very easy to connect. It's not off putting to connect with someone very early in a business relationship there because you're just sharing your virtual resumes. So it's like, I would always tell the story. If you meet someone, um, in a business context at a, at a business, you know, function and you get along well and you go back and you have a friend request on LinkedIn. That that seems great. You were just at a business meeting, but if you go back home and you have a friend request on, on Facebook, it's a little creepy. You know, it it just is, and it, it's become so voluminous social media that you, sometimes you could meet someone and you get 10 requests on every network, and it's just. It it just feels weird. So I built it to go from LinkedIn to Twitter to Instagram to Facebook. But the truth is, uh, I've deleted Facebook. i am gone from Facebook for good. um, And I'm trending in the direction to move away from more of the networks. But I still, as a business tool, think that's obviously um, great for businesses to use. And business people, I think that you just have to do it with the right amount of etiquette. I get way too many connections on LinkedIn every day asking me stuff about, you know, they'd say, oh, we want to sell you something from a legal thing. I mean, I haven't been a lawyer in like 15 years. You're just That's just you're not reading, you know, you're not reading the signs. It's just part of what has become e-consumption where people are macro-marketing instead of micro-marketing and paying attention to the people who actually want to be talked to.
1: Mm. Great. I love that uh we won't get into all of them because we would be here for hours but <laughs> i found it interesting the second one was twitter because a lot of people yeah. i don't think appreciate twitter but um no we're not going to go there i want what are the most valuable things that you offer people to help them succeed
0: um, I think I'm an expert at, at finding uh, efficiency or where to make things more efficient. I've done it in every business I've ever been in. Um, when I've gone into my offices, at all of my offices when I was a prosecutor, I changed substantial things inside the office that they. the first response was, well, we've always done it like this. And I said, well, I can, I can save everybody half the time. You know, Is that interesting to you? Honestly, normally in the government, they say, no, it's not. We like to do things the way we want. So I would <laughs> just do it because I, do I don't care. I don't like there's no way. When I got to my second uh, prosecutorial office in Sarasota, the files weren't alphabetized. So I was like, how do you find a file? And my secretary came in on the first day and she said, we had like the green computer screens at the time. She's like, well, you click in here, you type in the name, it gives you a number, then you go to your cabinet, then you pull out the number. And I said, that's like that's like 10 steps. Why wouldn't you just put them in alphabetical order? I mean, like they were in alphabetical order in every office I'd ever been in. So they just said, well, again... You know, this is just how we do it. So I just changed it. And within a week, everybody had changed it to the obvious, like, why wouldn't you want your files in alphabetical order? So when somebody calls about, you know, Bob Smith, you just look up Bob Smith instead of one one five after looking on the computer for five minutes. So <laughs> I think from my own personal distaste of wasting time, uh, I want to make everything as efficient as possible. So um, if, when I do consulting for businesses is just finding out where they're wasting the most time. and I can tell you it's not hard to find out. <laughs> Any business, you can find where they're wasting resources or time. A lot of it is on excess marketing or marketing to people who are basically uninterested. If you have a list of 10,000 and 5,000 haven't opened an email in six months, you know, you don't need them in your database. It's this kind of like, Oh, well we hope one day they'll open an email that look, that's great. But more often than not, you're sending negative vibes out there because they don't want it. Maybe they're just too lazy to unsubscribe because they have 5,000 emails in their inbox. But, I teach people how to micro market, which is identifying your smallest people. If your system can tell you who's opening emails, those are the people to immediately follow up with, you know, and I, I'm, I'm someone of a non hard sell. I don't like the hard sell in any business, no matter what I like the soft sell building the relationship and from relationships come sales or better relationships, bring other cross relationships to them. It's not always the one client who you're focused on that's going to be your sale they may know five people they might not want to buy your product but they may know five people who they will refer you to because you didn't push them like everybody else does
1: hmm. who would you say is your ideal client
0: hmm. depends what business i'm in <laughs> i mean for me, uh, if I was still in real estate, my ideal client is somebody who, and it will so it will apply. My ideal client in any business is somebody who trusts me completely, um, because if they don't, what you deal with in most businesses is you do all the work and then they say, well, I actually, I looked at some of that stuff and they're second guessing everything you do. And I can't work like that. It just disrupts my process. And again, it's a waste of time. It's like if somebody hires me to do a job and then they're sitting up all night on Zillow doing the same thing, they, they, there's no point to me doing it. And, there's, and they're wasting their own time. So the same as when I hire someone, uh, I think I'm tough as a client because when I hire someone and I pay them money, I expect them to do exactly what I'm paying them for on time. And if not, there's no reason for me to hire them to do it because I can probably do it myself. So I, I feel like I give somebody that same thing, but if they don't trust me, I can't change that. I can only do my job as well as possible. Uh, And, and I'm also someone who's not afraid to end a business relationship if it's not working for me, Uh, especially in real estate. If you've shown someone 50 houses and they're not, you know, you can tell they don't trust you enough. They're second guessing all of every decision you make, then you just need to cut bait and not waste time with it anymore
1: for both of your sake. It's a wonderful um, attitude to have. I mean, because it, it allows you to come from a place of integrity. You know, um, you see, you you have so many talents. You're you're a, like Thanks. a rena- you're a renaissance man. Uh, you know, in today's terminology, a polymath, I guess, in a way. I
0: feel like a polymath, but as it suits your podcast, it's because I'm always willing to change my story. Um, I'm interested in a lot of things. I love to read. I love to learn. I love to, you know, engage in healthy dialogue. But I'll never argue. Like to me, an argument um, is above a debate. It's just not. It's not going to help anybody. So no. I think. You know, the more things that I become interested in, the more I want to learn. And as my kids get older, it's so interesting because they bring things to the plate that make me become more interested in things I, I wasn't sure I was going to be interested in or that I learned more about. Um, and I know as they get older, that will only help, but I appreciate that. I feel like a polymath, but it just means I like a lot of stuff.
1: <laughs> it also means that you know a lot of stuff. And, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, If people wanted to take advantage of your expertise, what businesses mostly would benefit from getting in touch with you or would just be anyone in business?
0: Yeah, I mean, right now I haven't, I don't have a, a full on business consultation. I help a lot of people in real estate and I help friends who are trying to, to do stuff with their business. Right now I'm fully focused on writing. Um, and the best way to find out the things that I know are on Medium because that's where I write about so many different things. Right now I'm a top writer in, I think, 16 different categories, which again, you know, badges on social sites, they're not really a big deal, but it just means I'm productively writing in a lot of different areas. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll give all my info at the end. I'm always happy to, to help people. Um, I think I, I've learned a lot in my life, but I also have, um, on purpose not developed a real, um, business around doing something like that again, just because I don't want to get myself stuck in the same situation. So I enjoy helping people with, with no, you know, cash transaction or benefit. If I can help from a quick conversation, I'm always happy to. But I, I know if I went in and created a business, I would be able to do well, but I would take away um, what I want to do right now, which is is just write and then uh, soon start on my uh, novel and get going on that.
1: Well, I assume that you have a very specific morning ritual. Do, am I wrong?
0: <laughs> no, you're not wrong. <laughs> All
1: right. So how do you structure your time so that you do get a lot of writing done?
0: Okay, so when when I it's important to change because now I can control my own schedule. But when I couldn't and I was working 9 to 5, I would wake up much earlier. Um, I'm not an advocate of the super early wake-up for people who aren't early risers, but I was. I always woke up at 5 and I spent uh, six months waking up between 4 and 4.30. And basically, my morning routine is the same. The time can change depending on what my obligations are, but I – the first thing I do when I wake up is meditate for at least 10 minutes. Um, it, meditation has completely changed my life and I'm so much more calm than I used to be. It's, uh, it's kind of just fascinating. And I'm not, I'm not even good at it. I think that people think they have to get good and that they'll, they'll never have other thoughts that creep into their mind. I mean, half, I, I'm not good at it. I just do it. And it provides the calm that I need. Um, and my morning also, I usually write in a journal in the morning quickly, um, exercise, um, and, uh, you know, health, anything healthy in the morning is good. Uh, writing, meditation, reading. I usually read. Last year I was reading a solid hour before anybody in my house got up, and that's how I consume 75 books in one year. Um, and I, I use I use you know uh, Trello which is a kind of a management software to write down all my ideas so as a creative or really for anyone you spend the day having all these ideas that pop into your head and then you forget them all so i anytime i have an idea about anything i write it down or i give myself a reminder using Siri because i don't want to forget it and then i go back and i bookmark them all i, I use Trello uh, for like to organize everything in my life I have all my writing stuff on there I have life aspirations everything I've read I keep track of every movie I've seen every TV show I'm watching with my kids um, just so I don't have to go through the time of you know how everybody sits down these days to watch Netflix and then they flip through what they should watch for an hour that never happens to me because I know all the shows I'm watching and what I want to watch next. So I don't, I just don't want to waste any time. It goes Mm. back to my efficiency.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific number of hours that you devote just to writing your articles?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm because I'm unscheduled now and because I don't have to go to a nine to five job, uh, i I'm, I know how much I can write. Usually I'm counting the words. It's not so much the time. Um, but as, so the, in, in the two months prior to this, I wrote over a hundred thousand words and published a a hundred stories on Medium. And these, these were all like, I took the time to, to sit down and write them all. I don't redo any stories. Uh, but I did that so that I could, get myself ready to write a novel. I have a few different ideas and I needed to know that I can write that much. So writing 50,000 words a month will need to be writing more. Um, So I'd say I probably write for at least four hours a day. Um, Mm. But I intersperse a lot of things like I'm very open that I I like watching TV shows and I don't feel like it's the downfall of society. I feel like TV is, is a great break from what I do and I get a lot of ideas from it. and I think you can tell I don't really shy away from any of my things that I like. If I like it, I like it. I don't really, <laughs> I don't feel bad about anything that I that I do. Um, but I think taking a lot of breaks throughout those four hours is important. I'll sit down. I'll uh, write one article to finish and then I'll leave it in there. And then I go back and edit it a couple times and then, and then I'm ready to publish it as, as soon as possible. So I'd say most days I write about four hours. I read about an hour. I exercise between 30 minutes and an hour. I meditate between 10 and 20 minutes. Um, and I can tell you 100% that I, I've always been a, a healthy eater, but as I've, gotten older and i've started to investigate what works well for my body the more i investigate about food the more it's played a role in helping my mind work better just taking out all the preservatives in in all bad foods my mind is as sharp as it's ever been even though i keep getting older or so they tell me
1: <laughs> mm. i totally resonate with what you're saying it's wonderful and i'm glad that uh our listeners are getting to hear this. Um, here's another book, which I assume you probably know. <laughs> the Mi- the Miracle Morning by Hal no, El- El- Elrod. Abs- yeah.
0: Absolutely a life changer for me. It's what got me to set my routine. Like mm. I used to be kind of loosey goosey about it. But when I read that, I was like, no, I'm, I'm setting it. And for the first time, the first 60 days, I wrote down what I was going to do every morning and kept track of it on a spreadsheet. I had a spreadsheet that kept track of the amount of time I exercised, how much time I read, how many pages I read, how, how, many, uh, how long I meditated, how many affirmations I did. And I did it for 60 days so I wouldn't forget to do it. But I Personally, tracking does everything for me. I'm very self accountable. Um, That book was phenomenal. I read the regular one, then I read the one for real estate agents, and absolutely fantastic.
1: I was just at a seminar in um, a marketing seminar in San Diego a few weeks ago, and he was one of the speakers.
0: Yeah, he's. I've I've watched a, a few of his things. He, he has got a great great story too. Oh, I mean, I, oh
1: my God, it's 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 so so inspiring. Absolutely. Wow. No meditation. I want to know more. Uh, yeah. Do you do you do a specific kind of meditation?
0: No, I mean I haven't really gotten into to TM yet, but I I'd, I'd use Headspace, uh, the wow. app.
1: I knew I, it, I knew it. I knew it <laughs> <the> best, <And laughs> because I, I, I use Headspace. it. I use it too. Yeah,
0: it's great. Be, the, it's better than any app I've ever used because there's so many different categories like it's just one of these things where I can go through the categories. And I, I, like I said before, I think people are just too hard on themselves about meditating or think that it has to be perfect. Most mornings I wake up and while I'm still laying in bed, I just put it on. I don't get into Zazen posture. I just, I just want the 10 minutes of quiet, but it, over time it has helped me so much i i I don't love to fly i've flown a million times in my life but when i get uncomfortable on the flight now i just meditate and i feel a hundred times better or if i just close my eyes in any like i don't like i like being in an airport but i don't like all the people obviously from what i said before but if i just close my eyes and breathe and i put on headspace while i'm just sitting there and have nothing to do i feel a hundred times better in in probably two minutes so uh you know i I can't say enough about it, and I think that the most important thing is just to do it every day and not care if you... Sometimes I think the whole time. I can't turn my mind off. There's a lot of things going on in there, but I don't feel bad about it. I feel glad that I did did 10 minutes. You know,
1: I, I agree. It's, it's cha- I've been doing it for more than a year ha- mm. using Headspace, and yeah. it has made a big difference for me. And listeners, they give you 10 days to try it out for free. Yeah. No obligation. Just go to Headspace.com and um, jump in. It's phenomenal. It it is. You'll, a you'll never
0: go back. There's so many categories of what you want to learn on there, and they each just give you the time to be quiet. Mm. And I think as long as you, the only thing I would say is you can't. You know, you the, the meditation is not for while you're running. I I I have to do it just sitting in complete quiet. I love silence, so I just love to be meditating and the only thing I can hear is is birds and hopefully not like the lawn guys on my block, you know, blowing the lawns that early, that really ruins it.
1: Well, you know, but even doesn't he say constantly, as you hear sounds, don't resist them, just allow them to be part yeah. of your meditation. Yeah, yeah but, they go uh, away.
0: It's like yeah. the shock of hearing something the first time, but if yeah. you're focused on what you're doing, you know, it will just go into the ether and disappear.
1: Yeah, wonderful stuff.
0: We have you, a lot of similarities. <laughs> I
1: know. I realize that. I know. Great. If you didn't have to work at all, what would you do?
0: I mean, that's really what I'm doing now. I'm <laughs> that's I'm, true. I'm retired. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I've I've selectively retired from the rat race. I've I've been investing in real estate my whole life. So, my sister and I run a lot of properties. So, that's really our business. But right now I, I'm doing that. I, I write every day. I enjoy the time with my kids as much as they'll have me because they're teenagers. Um, and I plan on traveling a lot more. Um, my kids are going to college soon. My son is finishing his junior year. And my daughter's finishing her freshman year. And uh, my plans for when they graduate are going to involve uh, getting rid of my house and my belongings and traveling um, all over the place. And as long as I'm close enough to come back for, for when they need stuff.
1: Where do you live now?
0: I live in Montclair, New Jersey. Um, I, grew up oh. Brooklyn, I grew up in Brooklyn Heights, but I, I've lived in seven states. So I, uh, I like moving. I like being in different places because I like the exploration of new beginnings.
1: Curiosity, absolutely. Where do you see yourself in five years?
0: Uh, hopefully, as a successful author. Um, but the thing is, I don't, wherever I am in five years, it's going to be okay. You know, I I don't have any um, requirements on myself. And that that doesn't mean that I'm not motivated. Anybody who knows me knows I'm extremely motivated and will get to what I want. But I don't have any pressure on myself to achieve a goal. I know where I'm at in five years as my kids will be in college. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to hopefully be healthy. And I'm going to be enjoying my life. Um, Hopefully that will be with at least one published book under my belt. But the thing is, if I just focused on that, then I may pass on other opportunities that come up. I've written two screenplays. Of, so I, I don't know what's out there, but I know I'm going to be happy because that's the kind of life that I'm living right now.
1: Are you prepared to say what the first novel is going to be about?
0: Uh, well, the, if people follow me on Medium, I use the series feature on there. So there's a couple uh, that I'm toying around with one's called isolation and one's called when uh, when the internet disappeared um and i I like them both <laughs> so mm. they usually have a macabre background but uh i kind of let the story develop i have a third one also so i'm not sure yet but i'm planning on getting started this summer so i probably have about a month to go till i till i start to put in the work on a novel mm. um, which is going to be a little harder, I think, than the screenplays to me, but in some ways easier because I'm farther along in, in how I write now.
1: One, mm. well, I can hear the excitement in your voice. It's, it's so wonderful, yeah, you am. know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I, that's the only way to live. Now, you know, this is a funny question because you've kind of answered it about 10 times. But yeah. if there is a book that we haven't mentioned that's, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's that stands out as your absolute favorite, what would it be?
0: I have a couple quick. No, kind of you, only you only get one.
1: You only get one.
0: So, well, all right. I'm going to say "Ego is the Enemy" by Ryan Holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I think that a lot of people have suggested to me in the past that I have an e, like an ego. or well, I mean, we all have an ego. But what I got from this book is that a lot of times it's how other people are looking at you. Like, I'm definitely confident. I'm sure at some point people have thought that I was cocky, but it's it comes from research and I I have a good memory. So I, I kind of if I'm confident with the things I'm dealing with, if that comes across as ego you know, I'm okay with that. I don't ever want to be rude to anyone. I think I'm very careful with what I say and my words, but what ego is the enemy taught me was that a lot of the things that I've done in my past were things of my ego that I was fearing from others, you know, and ego can take us down much more. It plays into another book, but there's a big difference between ego and self and ego is certainly the enemy. And I don't think I suffer from ego I think that the people who think other people suffer from huge egos are, are often dealing with the ego issue um, inside somewhere. And I oh, think that book me put that out.
1: I totally agree with that. And I'm not surprised to hear that people would say that about you because... <laughs> no, no, listen. Most people are not happy with where they're at. When they meet an individual whose energy radiates... Um, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, abundance. It is threatening. And one way of dealing with that threat is to attack it.
0: Yeah, and I think we've all done that. I mean, when I was yeah. younger, I would look at—I used to look at personal growth books and the entire personal growth industry as like, oh, it—it's a sham, it's a pyramid scheme. And honestly, some some of them could be, but it doesn't mean that the information that's contained inside these books and seminars can't change your life. I mean, I've done a lot of work with Mind Valley with Vishen Lakhiani, and I, I I don't have to agree with everything. I just have to participate in everything I do online, any course, if I do a masterclass, I get something out of it. So if you're taking something from it, it can only add to what's inside your mind. And hopefully that should come off as confident. I would hope that everybody is confident at least about some, some part of their life or themselves, because, you know, it's just a, a, you feel better about yourself.
1: Mm -hmm. You have an empowering story. That's, that's the, the basis of it. What about a favorite quote?
0: Yep, I had it bookmarked because I knew you were going to ask me. Um, it is from uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, which is one of the oldest books in the world. It is, The Wise Man Recognizes the Limits of His Knowledge. The Foolish Man Thinks He Knows Everything. Mm-hmm. So it, it resonates with me because I there have definitely been times in my life where I – I knew I didn't know everything, but I acted like I knew everything. And now I'm much more open to, I want to know everything about everything. Like, you know, I, when it comes to politics and religion, I don't talk about a lot, but I'm really open to hearing about anything as long as a constructive dialogue. So I, I know that I know nothing. And I think the more that we see is out in the world, or you just listen to other people who have so much to say, none of us know anything. So the more that we can accept that, the more that we can be wise instead of thinking that we, you know, everything we say is going to be right. I I like being wrong because it gives me an opportunity to learn something new. So I may think I'm right when I say something, but if I'm wrong, no problem. I I just want to be shown that and then I'm happy to accept it.
1: Can you spell the name of the book?
0: Oh, yep. So the author is L-A-O-T-Z-U. And then the book is Tao, T-A-O-T-E, and then Ching, C-H-I-N-G. In English, it's the Book of the Way. It's one of the oldest books, I think, in the history. Um, and it, there's a lot of different translations of it. Um, I read the original because I, you know, obviously translated version. I, I, I like it to be a little difficult. <laughs> it's, it's a phenomenal
1: book. What, you read the original in what language?
0: No, I read it in English. I read a translated version, but there's ones that kind of have commentary, and I don't want any commentary. No, I just wanted no, to read it no. as is.
1: Yeah. How can people contact you?
0: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Trust green, T-R-U-S-T, and then green is like the color but with an E at the end. Um, And I uh, write all the time on Medium. So that's medium.com and then it's slash the at symbol and then Jonathan Green and Jonathan is J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N. I'm on Instagram, but nobody, you know, that's really just for my personal stuff. And to get a hold of me via email is the best way. I do not answer my phone ever. So nobody really has my phone number. (laughs) Uh, It's Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at trustgreen.com.
1: Beautiful. Any final thoughts?
0: No, thank you to you. I mean, the change your story and and what you said as the opening really resonated with me. I mean, uh, now that we're through the whole interview, I really appreciate all the time because I, I can feel that you know so much, but you're here to, to bring out stories to other people that can help them get moving in the right direction and not in terms of right or wrong in terms of what's going to be better for them. Because I think if we're all, none of us should be supremely just comfortable and okay with what it is, we can always do something better. We can always be a better person. So, uh, I like to, to learn. And I just hope that, you know, as as much information as I can provide or did on this, I just hope it's useful to one person. And if I accomplish that, um, then I feel great.
1: Oh, you've contributed a lot. Thank you. And uh, for some reason, the quote from Bob Dylan comes up in my mind. He not busy being born is busy dying.
0: Couldn't agree with you more. Thanks so much for having me on. I really, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to, uh, to it coming out.
1: Very soon, and thank you. And as always, thank you, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Jonathan Green. Did you feel the uplifting energy that Jonathan brought to this call? I'll bet a lot of you did, just like I did. The energy comes from the fact that he's living an authentic life, that he's doing the things that excite him in the world. And that is very contagious. At least it should be, if you allow it to be. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website ChangeYourStoryPodcast.com. Take advantage of the free gift on that website, the downloadable free ebook that I created for you Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Jonathan and I got really excited about many, many different books. Why? Because books change lives, especially the books that we talked about today. Get excited. Go to www.org audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose any audiobook of your choice absolutely free as a guest of this show and get one month free trial of all of audible's service. A reminder that we are heading into a couple of really amazing interviews in the next few weeks. One is with a gentleman who actually died and came back to life. And the other is with a man who faced, well, he risked his life by standing up for things that he believed. He became a whistleblower. I won't tell you about what, but his story was so powerful that a Hollywood movie was made about it. And you will get to hear him in the next few weeks on this show. And as usual, I am going to create for you the one word story podcasts, five, six, 10, maybe 15 minutes at the most, exploring the power of a word or a set of words that impact our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Please keep your comments coming. Let me know what you really like about this show and what you'd like to see in it. Send your comments to loseclub, L-O-U-S-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. One of the most important things that kept coming home to me in this particular podcast is Jonathan's willingness at all stages of his life to reinvent himself, to not get stuck or frozen in a particular role, a particular identity. We're all faced with these choices, and like I mentioned earlier, Henry David Thoreau really nailed it when he said that most people live lives of quiet desperation. Have the courage in the next week to look at your own life and say, is there a role or maybe more than one that I am holding on to because I'm afraid to let it go because I think I really need it, but I can't stand it? Recognize that holding on to it is limiting who you are, is not allowing you to grow and to enjoy and be the best self you can possibly be. Stand up against it. Take that step to change that role into one that perhaps you've been dreaming about but have not gone near so far. Allow yourself to embrace it. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life?
0: Tune in to the next episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.